John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 692.je2907, certificate number 16823. I recently tried to get into Brazilian silent film, John. Hmm. Well, it's about time. <laughs> right. I know. Like, I'm tired of the p- people pointing and laughing. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, in the circles you travel in, you're a little late to the game. Because you, you, can, you can kind of nod and be like, oh, yes, amazing use of symbolism. But they're going to find out sooner or later. Well, yeah, right. And, and I mean, how do you engage with other Portuguese language cultures without having an encyclopedic knowledge of Brazilian silent film? I was at a beloved local institution, Scarecrow Video, which at, is... Everyone listening should find it online. One of the last repositories of... of uh, we hope it still exists in your era. They, right, strange films. Oh, Scarecrow has survived every single, uh, like, assault. It will survive... Long past our lives. Well, the assaults that survived so far have been like owners losing money and getting bored. It hasn't actually survived any kind of bioterrorism or anything yet. So we'll, we'll, I hope it survives in the year 4000. Well, but I mean, it survived the death of the VHS player. It survived the death of the CD-R. Uh, it's possibly the largest and uh, most beloved video store in America at this point. It's got 130,000 titles or so. And it's, it's just fantastic. I, I was going there in the 90s and checking out VHS tapes. And I still love it. Yep. They, they it's their thirtieth anniversary. That's uh, where you saw, saw this recording. Uh, every episode of Saved by the Bell, right on VHS. <laughs> I happened to see last time I was there a collection of um, kind of forgotten treasures of world cinema presented by Martin Scorsese, who uh-huh. in our time is a director who's very into that kind of thing. Yep. Making sure that these things get preserved. Unlike a lot of the directors of his era who are just into inserting digital like uh, dragons into their <laughs> classic films. Scorsese still cares about the little guy, the little Brazilian silent film director. <laughs> so what did you discover? There's this movie in particular that I've never seen called, I think it's called like Limite, like Limit, which is, um, I heard it described as like, what if Terrence Malick made a silent movie? So it's just kind of this odd tone poem by this Brazilian guy who made one movie 
and then there was only one nitrate print of it left. And so you could never see it. Like we, we talk about how we're living in the age when everything is available and there is no more like quest of the aficionado to find the one thing, but there is, it just has to become weirder and weirder stuff. Right. 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 If it's a, uh, yeah, it's just like a sex deviance. Martin Scorsese's deviance is finding right. the the one extant print. He used to get turned on by the big Finnish new wave directors and that just doesn't do it for <laughs> him anymore. It. it escalated. <laughs> now he's looking for that Inuit film that was made in the 40s. And it doesn't exist anymore, but somebody carved a description of it on a walrus tusk right. and he's been combing the tundra. Spare no expense. So I, I got this video, which, you know, it's finally on DVD and Blu-ray in our finally. time. You know, you know how it is. We've, we've all been waiting for years. <laughs> finally. We were all lined up at opening night. Uh, and I watched the thing, and it's actually a bit of a snooze. It's like three. What? No, come on. It's like three people in a lifeboat, <laughs> and you kind of see it's like flashback, ambiguous flashbacks to their adventures that brought them to this point. But uh, it was a two, the disc had two movies on it because it's some Scorsese set. And the other one, I didn't even know what it was. So I just like turned on this movie called Revenge, knowing nothing about it except that it was the other movie that I hoped was a little livelier than uh-huh. Limice. <laughs> and uh, my boat ride with Andre. <laughs> Imagine my dinner with Andre with no dialogue <laughs> because it's a silent film. <laughs> it's just a lot of them cutting veal or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't think there were even title cards, actually. It really was just like, let's watch these uh, old, guys. Was there old-timey piano music? Was there anything? There was an orchestral score. Okay. I really have a hard time watching silent movies with no, with like dead silence. Right. <laughs> That's when you take out your phone. It's more like surveillance footage. <laughs> the uh, other movie was called Revenge, and I had thought it was a Russian movie. I had this vague idea it was like a Soviet movie from the late 80s, but it starts up, and the very first thing you see is like a kind of a old-timey, like a medieval almost Korean palace or oh. temple. And you could, uh, you could tell it was Korean because of your years living in Korea? No, I can just identify the palaces of every, uh-huh. of all of Earth's indigenous peoples. I see. It was, um, <laughs> what were the characteristics of it that made you understand it was Korean right away? No, you're absolutely right. Like I grew up in South Korea and so we would have to go on field trips to the temples and palaces and folk villages where people were still making the candy the old fashioned way and doing the, the fun dances. Mm-hmm. And of course we hated every moment. <laughs> <laughs> like I feel terrible in hindsight. These are like UNESCO world heritage sites, these beautifully preserved Chosun dynasty palaces. And we were just like, Oh, more of this. Yeah. Cause I, I guess you grew up surrounded by anything and you, you take it for granted. When I graduated from high school, Alaska airlines gave every graduating senior in Anchorage that year, uh, one, one round trip ticket to anywhere in Alaska. Wait, what? As a graduating present. Wait, and, is, is that for real? Yeah. Do they still do this? No. Oh. It was something they did in 1986. I don't know why. Somebody had a great idea. This is the idea that the rest of America has about Alaska is that you guys are just all getting these freebies all the time. It's absolutely true. <laughs> uh, you know, they gave us that permanent fund dividend every year and still do uh, to people that live up there. Oh, you have to live there. You, you don't get a check. <clears throat> no, there, wa- there was a sad moment when the state of Alaska said, you have not lived in Alaska for several years now, and so we are striking you from the permanent fund record. And I was like, buh, 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 but I still have an Alaska driver's license. I thought you were saying a fund dividend. It's a, it's a permanent, permanent fund. Permanent fund. Oh. They, they, they tax the oil uh, revenue 
just but some microscopic amount that produces billions of dollars. Like there's no, you know, there's no state income tax in Alaska and there's also no property tax. I mean, there's a lot of, it, it pays for a lot of things. Look at you hardy northerners just living off your fat government checks like the, I'll tell you like what. the adventurers of old. I'll tell you what, uh, Alaska, if it, if it seceded from the United States, it'd be like the world's 16th biggest economy. But uh, yeah, what'd you do with your plane ticket? Well, that's the thing. So they gave out these plane tickets with the idea, I think, of of building a generation of Alaskans that had been somewhere in Alaska that had seen some unusual place because you could you could use it, this ticket to go to, you know, Unalakleet or Kuskokwim or uh, you know any place you could go to places you wouldn't otherwise even made up places like Unalakleet and Kuskokwim, <laughs> like places from Game of Thrones that you just invented, and all of us. In my in my group, who were all like college bound. Let me guess, Orlando. <laughs> no, you couldn't. You, it had to be in Alaska. Oh, it had to be in Alaska. Yeah, that was the trip. That was the thing. It was like go discover your own state, your roots. Because you know you're growing up in Anchorage. You're like city kids, and Alaska is this enormous place, and and you can't get there by road for the most part. You have to fly. So where did people go? I can't I can't imagine where an Alaskan teenager would want to go in Alaska. Well, that's the thing. Now that I think about it, now that I reflect on it, I'm like, why the hell didn't I go out to Attu or at least to Nome? Yeah, John, go to Nome. And what my group of friends did was they flew down to Kodiak, which is like just a little. Is it that island? Yeah, it's Kodiak Island, but Kodiak, the town, is just a little, it's like a fishing port. Right, yeah. They got a hotel room. <clears throat> they bought like five half racks of strows, and they sat in the hotel room and drank and fell asleep, and then the next day they flew home. And I thought that was dumb, and so I just didn't use my ticket, and then it expired. <laughs> you sure showed them. I sure did. And I was like, now I think back, and I'm like, what kind of, I could have just, I mean, I probably could have gotten five tickets from my friends and turned it into a month long tour of Alaska where I learned everything. And now it's just like never been to Attu, never been to Kuskokwim. The school I went to in Korea was a kind of an international school for American expat kids and a lot of Korean American kids whose parents had moved back to work in the kind of the newly booming industries, all the Samsungs and the Daewoo's. And there were actually school trips, but not to, you know, some camp or whatever. Like I went on a school trip to Moscow my wow. senior year, which is, as, as we will see later in the show, it just you could not be further from Seoul. It's like half a world away. And that's post. Uh, uh, it was just post. It was like early Perestroika. 90s. Yeah, it was early 90s. Yeah. There, but there were still bread lines and they wanted our Levi's. It was Yeltsin. It was still Gorbachev. Oh, right? it was. 91? Yeah, it would have been. Well, yeah. They were both figures. I remember because I bought one of these. Um, Yeltsin would have been the mayor of Moscow. I bought one of these Russian uh, nesting, nesting dolls. dolls Matryoshka or whatever they're called. And it was the kind that they always have for tourists where it's the little Lenin inside yeah. a little Stalin, Stalin, inside a little Khrushchev, inside a Brezhnev. It was a really nice one. But it, I can't remember if it ended Yeltsin-Gorbachev or Gorbachev-Yeltsin, but they were both in the set. It was clear that that was how the... The line of power was going to go. But pre-Putin. Oh, pre-Putin. Yeah, if you go there today, I'm sure Putin is the outside doll. I, I have one in the other room. It's such a big country. They just want a big, strong guy. Listen, let's not get into Russian politics. We're talking, uh, we're talking now about the 
We're talking about Korean architecture, but right. we but we got on a sidetrack. It just had the, uh, it was a, a palace with the colorful roofs, the distinctive tile and eaves. The characters were wearing Korean traditional dress. Was this film in color or black and white? In beautiful technicolor. Uh-huh. Kind of very uh, diffuse, like it had been shot through some kind of gossamer. So all the whites were really shot out. It uh, kind of had this weird dreamlike thing. So it was made by penthouse films. <laughs> yeah, it was softcore uh, <laughs> Korean palaces. Like, you can't tell if they're actually putting the tile onto the roof or not. <laughs> and when the characters came out, it was some um, Chosun Dynasty king, and he's wearing the traditional headdress. Like, he looks like all the people you see on, you know, I immediately recognize it because we would see it on Korean money or in the museums. You know, it would be, it, you know, it's the equivalent of seeing Mount Rushmore or, mm-hmm. you know, portraits of George Washington or something. Mm-hmm. Um, he had the beard and everything. And he's leading a retinue through the palace. And I think he's watching his son play with a commoner. And he's not sure who's going to win this little scrap. And this is meant to be taking place circa... It looked to me like maybe 18th century Mm -hmm. Korea. Mm -hmm. And then they start talking. And they're speaking Russian. Hmm. And they're speaking... It's not dubbed. The very Korean, ethnically Korean looking actors are moving their mouths. And Russian is coming out. Mm -hmm. And some of the actors look more Korean than others, but like, it looks like you like, it looks like I just went to Netflix and watched a, 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 a mopey Korean drama because I'm a sad teenager. Like it, it was indistinguishable from one of these. Uh, do you speak any Russian? I speak hardly any Russian. But you do speak some Korean. A little, mm-hmm. like more just kind of survival conversational type Korean. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was subtitled in English. Thank you, Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. But I could not figure out what I was, like, I was, suddenly I was just hypnotized. Like, what is this weird alien artifact of medieval Koreans speaking weird, unaccented Russian? And the movie goes on and it becomes this great multi-generational epic about a guy trying to get revenge on this uh, itinerant teacher who killed his daughter, stabbed his daughter in a barn once. And, uh, you know, the canvas becomes very broad. He goes to Sokolin. He goes into China. He goes into Manchuria chasing this guy. It's a huge, huge epic. And the whole thing is uh, this weird Korean-Russian hybrid. And I start looking on my phone like, what is this thing? Sure enough, it's a Soviet movie that played at Cannes in 1989. Um, but it's, I think it's based on a novel by a guy named Anatoly Kim. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <I was like, laughs> well, it would be, uh-huh. I guess, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's based on some, what, Russo-Korean novel? What is going on here? And I went down this rabbit hole reading about something I didn't even know existed, which is a giant population of Korean, of ethnically Korean people who live in Central Asia. And in the late 80s, were part of the Soviet Union. Huh. So Korea, uh, North Korea borders China. And, and Russia. Russia. Yes, there's, there's a little bit. A little corner of That's it. That's a funny thing about Russia is there's a country in our world that actually touches Norway and North Korea. <laughs> Because that's just how big Russia is. So um, historically, I mean, the, the, the northern border of the Korean peninsula has been pretty well defined as like the border of Korea. Yeah, there's a, there's a river, I think the Yelu the River Yelu. up there, which pretty well tells you, hey, this is Manchuria over here, and then Russia, and this is Korea down here. So historically, I mean, back now, uh, centuries, there was no confusion about... There wasn't a, a like 
intertidal zone where Russians and Koreans kind of uh, mixed. I didn't think so because the one thing I knew about Korea in that era is that it was a hermit kingdom uh-huh. for centuries. You know, even when Japan and China started to kind of grudgingly open itself up to some Western ships, Korea was like, no, thank you. And even before Europeans, you know, even when it was just the Chinese and the Japanese, they maintained their isolation and their culture, you know, more than any other East Asian country. Right. And you kind of see that today with North Korea. You know, they're still kind of the last hermit kingdom on earth and they have a long historical legacy of that. But it turns out there was at least one exception. I mean, in modern days, of course, there's a huge... Korean diaspora all over the world. But the story of the Koreans of Kazakhstan and Central Asia, the Koryosaram, goes back to the 1860s when, first of all, it was a rough time in Korea, lots of peasant farmers struggling and starving. The Joseon dynasty had weakened, a lot of wealth concentrated into the hands of a few surviving elite families that were trying to keep the last scraps to themselves. And they so were basically our culture. They were <laughs> they were under siege by the the voracious Western appetite for contact with the East, right? I mean, they it wasn't just that they <laughs> I were. I thought you were going to say silk and opium or whatever. Yes, contact. Contact. We just love to meet new people. We're like Captain Kirk. Well, we what, what some people call silk and opium, <laughs> I call contact. That's the whole. That was the whole uh, understory of that Carl Sagan book. Yes, the, exactly. The UFOs just wanted silk and opium. They just want to, those aliens are nice and just want to say hi, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. And let Jodie Foster see her dead dad. Yeah, they want to introduce us slowly to the, to the, to the the, bigger cosmos. Yeah, to the Imperial Senate. I feel like that's not what the discussions were like in London and Lisbon and Washington back then. It wasn't like, let's see if we can show them how great gunpowder is a little at a time. (laughs) The Koreans seem so interesting. Let's teach them. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Uh, The China was run by the Qing dynasty at the time Mm -hmm. and had closed its borders essentially to Korea. So all these starving farmers in North Korea had no place to go. Again, it's not Mm -hmm. not too different than today, except today there are big waves of emigration of people getting into northern China when they can. And the Russian Tsar in the 1860s, I guess it would have been Alexander, Mm -hmm. um, speaking of Alaska, decided he would open his borders because this was before the Trans-Siberian Railway and Eastern Russia, like Eastern Siberia, was essentially uninhabited. So to someone not looking at a map, geographically trying to 
figure out how Russia touches Korea. It actually comes down from the north. Yeah, there's a little uh, finger of Russia that comes down the coast. But crucially, right there is the port, the, the largest port in eastern Russia, Vladivostok, which is like a major, like, and certainly during the Cold War was like a big, big Russian Navy port. But not then. I mean, Vladivostok didn't even exist before 1860. This was a determined move by the Tsar to actually create a Russian presence on the Pacific. Uh-huh. And certainly hard to, that's a hard sell to get people from Moscow and St. Petersburg to cross Siberia in a day with no trains. And at that time, the ethnic residents of that region of Russia would have been Asian. Yeah, it's nomadic Asian peoples, you know, probably related to the uh, the Ainu of northern Japan, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who historically have not done that well, and we probably don't, we don't have, their, you know, their descendants have now been mixed, mixed and lost and scattered and assimilated. Right. right. So Alexander's, sorry, Alexander's idea was, well, let's just invite starving Koreans to settle the area and, you know, we'll start to get industry and agriculture up there. And Koreans jumped on the chance and started to move into Siberia. And later during, and they were lucky to have gotten out because then at that point, the Japanese started to influence Korean politics, ending an actual occupation. Right. um, And the Korean people were subjugated for decades. And at some point, Japan, in order to staff its coal mine, it it took Sakhalin Island, which had been Russian, north of Hokkaido, north Mm -hmm. of the Japanese archipelago, There were an endless series of disputes over Sakhalin Island between the Russians and the Japanese. And, you know, the control the Japanese had over it, they uh, wanted the coal. Right. This was a contention at the end of uh, World War II. Yeah. Well, right before the war ended, I think right before Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Russia successfully invaded Sakhalin. Well, you know, Russia had never declared war against Japan during the entire, uh, all of World War II and then declared war against Japan right at the end in order just to affect this this uh, conquering of that island. It's like some guy who's never won a, a ring or whatever, like, you know, in the 18th year of his career, get, trying to get traded to the, <laughs> to the Lakers or something so he can get that ring. It was pretty canny on their part. And in fact, the last battles of World War II were fought between the Russians and the Japanese, even after the armistice, because kind of word hadn't gotten out, and the, or it had, but the, the Russian troops were you know, being encouraged to like conquer as much land as you can, because that's going to matter to us during the treaties. And that's what exactly what happened. They took Sakhalin back. And at that point, what they got was a bunch of Koreans that had been forcibly moved by Japan into Sakhalin to work as forced labor in the coal mines. So this is a separate group of Koreans from the ones that in the, in the, what did you say, the 18th century or 19th century? The the 1860s. So the group of Koreans that, that, that uh, voluntarily emigrated to Russia in the 1860s. And now this is a separate group of Koreans that were forcibly imported to yeah. Sakhalin. So the first thing is more of a 40 acres and a mule, you know, come farm Siberia, which sounds right. great. Sure right? it does. <laughs> <laughs> and the second one is much more of a trail of tears scenario. I bet you could still take them up on that 40 acres and a mule in <laughs> Siberia uh, offer. You could probably it'd be like 40 square miles, right. you know, like there's, there's still plenty of Siberia. But going back earlier to just before the war, here's what had happened in... 1937 mm. in Stalin's Soviet Union. This was a bad time both in Stalin's Soviet Union and Japanese uh, occupation of, of Asia. Right. If you're a Korean, your choices here are 
Well, that's the invading <laughs> Japanese imperialist forces or Stalin. Right. Yikes. Yeah, it's a bad time. That's tricky. <clears throat> you know, the Korean settlers of, of Eastern Russia had lived there mostly in peace. But in the late 30s, Stalin heard from the NKVD, the predecessors of the KGB, that because of the increasing antagonism between, between Imperial Japan and all of its neighbors, you know, Russia started to worry about war on that front. And the Soviet Union started to wonder, what if these Koreans we have living in our borders are spies uh, for Japan? Oh, because wow. the you know Korea is now part of the Empire of Japan. Sure, but they're they're certainly mistaking uh, what an ethnic Korean community's loyalties would be. Exactly, um, and I guess that that would be one way to you know get spies in. You know, because you Japan has no shortage of Koreans that can pay to do this, and Koreans would attract less notice in southern Siberia than the Japanese. But there has actually been no evidence, historical evidence I know of, that any Koreans actually were spying for Japan, for, probably for the reasons you state. You know, right. they, they were not crazy about their Japanese overlords. So in October 1937, Stalin orders that this vast Siberian population of Koreans be forcibly relocated to Central Asia. Wow, what a uh, what an interesting historical commonality that Stalin's relocation of the Koreans has with our with our own American relocation of our Japanese. That's exactly of right. Our Japanese, I should say, not our Japanese. And earlier relocations in American history as well. Um, right. You know, they they weren't trying. You know, it was trail the of tears being an apt right. description. And it wasn't the reasons were the same. You know, suspicion that these Asian immigrants might be loyal to their, you know, mother country. Um, But the distances were vastly larger. They weren't just putting these people in camps. They were actually doing some trailer style reservation system where they were going to move everybody 4,000 miles away. So now though, Stalin did this a lot, right? He moved the population of Kazakhstan. He moved the population of Georgia. He was, he was really into taking a group of people out of one place and deciding that now they lived somewhere else. I assume a lot of it is just, you know, the many, many different ethnic groups that make up, that made up the Soviet Union at the time. And one means of exercising control is to make sure none of them actually have too much autonomy or local power. Right. They're no longer connected to their ancestral homeland and somebody else is living there now. And that after, at the dissolution of the Soviet Union, this was a big question of repatriation. But I guess that's a a big theme of the 19th and 20th centuries uh, worldwide. I mean, that's the problem in the Middle East too. Uh, yeah. All these di- diasporas, who gets their land back? Right. You know, where do you put the Kurds? Where do you put the Palestinians? And it was also part of the collectivization process right. that Stalin was big on in the 1930s. You know, hey, we're going to need a bunch of farmers to farm Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan to set up these collective farms. Here's what we'll do. We'll just bring in 100,000 Koreans from Siberia who, where they might be making trouble. Who knows? Right. And we'll bring them here and they will grow rice. The problem, of course, is that just because you can grow rice in a lush, muddy <laughs> Korean rice paddy does not mean you can move these people to the steppes of Central Asia. Koreans are not magic rice growers is what you're saying. They, they can't <laughs> grow rice in the desert. They're not like a D&D <laughs> character where... Every roll, if you're Korean, you get two more units of rice. I guess it's some settlers of Catan kind of a yeah. scenario. No, you're a, you're in a big battle with a dragon inside of a cave, and the Korean wizard is like, I, ro- I throw a grow rice spell. I'll make rice. 
But the funny thing is the Koreans actually make to this, made this happen. So they were uh, loaded onto trains, just uh, tens of thousands of Koreans, and transported across the country in, you know, windowless trains, you know, in the dead of winter huh. across Siberia. It's this brutal, bone-shattering ride where a lot of the infirm, the elderly and the sick, died and did not survive. But the tens of thousands who survived, who made it to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, had brought with them rice seeds in their pillows, you know, although a lot of their other stuff had been confiscated. And they were dropped at a railway station in Ushtobe, Kazakhstan, in the middle of the high, the high desert of Central Asia, like literally the middle of nowhere. If you, uh. if you, ca if you calculate the continental pole of inaccessibility, like the point in the world that is furthest from any navigable ocean, you actually get the Chinese-Kazakhstani border. I mean, when, <clears throat> when you think of Kyrgyzstan, you think that it's a fascinating sort of mountainous, like Silk Road intersection of cultures. When I think of Kyrgyzstan, I just think I don't know how to spell it. Uh, Tajikistan, also like a, like a kind of a very compelling, uh, like, Sure. Border with Afghanistan. Like one of these places has Samarkand in them, you know, kind yep. of this legendary Silk Road, Genghis Khan that's kind a, of that's a city. Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan. But Kazakhstan, we forget, is it's so big and it's so empty. Like you couldn't get more nowhere. It's like Mongolia of the West. It makes Mongolia look like a it makes, yeah. densely crowded <laughs> favela. <laughs> Uh, so these, you know, can you imagine these Korean families just dropped off here in, you know, literally the furthest point from anywhere on earth and told, hey, um, time to make your new rice farms. Get, let's get going. If you actually look at the border, if you kind of uh, take a close look at the border between Russia and Kazakhstan, you'll find that it is like a Minecraft border. Um, it's a series of almost like randomly generated straight lines instead of a natural flowing. It's, it doesn't go according to any sort of latitudinal lines. It's really like a Lego border. Well, do you know why? What, like what led to that? That seems like a really good omnibus show. Checkerboarding too. I'm going to have to figure Kazakhstani out. Boogaloo. I'm going to have to figure out why the border between those two countries around the town of Omsk is uh, like hilariously like a, in my first experiments with uh, programming in MS-DOS. Wow. There were, uh, there was a program that was like a random line segment generator uh, that I, you know, it was like the first thing I ever programmed. Right. And it pr would produce this like sort of just segments. I, I did that with the, the turtle in Logo. Did you ever use Logo? Mm -mm. A little education language where you make a turtle walk around, walk around. And, and do these kind of little random walk things. Anyway, so here they are. The uh, Russian-Kazakhstani border, by the way, second longest in the world after U.S.-Canada. <laughs> it really is just hard for us to understand the scale. Well, of... they, they made it extra long by having, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> having it go. <laughs> it's a fractal. Up 10 miles, over it's 10 miles. It's the world's <laughs> only border of infinite length. <laughs> And the Koreans actually did, you know, figure out irrigation. Wow. They were a, a, a hardy, industrious people who figured out how to make the, the I guess they're the, Mormon, they're the Mormons of Central Asia. Uh -huh. They made the desert bloom. Uh -huh. They figured out how you could grow rice in the middle of the Kazakhstani desert. And they created their own little island of Korean culture in what is today Kazakhstan and uh, Uzbekistan. And what, uh, like, uh, what are the, some of the place names? Well, the, the, 
the cattle cars dropped them off in the city of Ustobe. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, over the next 50 years or so, they, you know, spread out to farm the region all over. Most of them are still in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan of the 100,000 Koryo Saram, they're called. That's that's just what they call themselves in Eastern Siberia. Saram is just Korean for people. Like you and I are, are Miguk Saram, we're Americans. Mm-hmm. Koreans are Hanguk Saram, people of Korean nationality. But these were the Koryo Saram, the Koryo people in Siberia. They're, it's, they're still centered, their population is still centered just 200 miles to the south in uh, Almaty, I guess, the capital of, of Kazakhstan. And they're fairly well, I'm, they were kind of forcibly integrated into Soviet life. At the time, they spoke a weird dialect of Korean called Koryomar, which was kind of based on the isolated North Korean, uh, archaic version of Korean that was spoken then. Interesting. That's not found anywhere else in the world. But in 1945, Stalin made it illegal for them to have their own schools where the kids could learn Korean. Mm-hmm, a famous and, trick. Yeah, you always do that. And so that unique dialect has kind of died out, you know, when the very last, when the very last people of that generation die, there will be no Koryomar. So Stalin Russified them and, and now they're Russians, uh, a Russian speaking population. And there was some interbreeding with the, you know, with the um, sort of, kind of Asian-looking people that were already living in Kazakhstan and uh, Uzbekistan at the Descendants time. of the Mongols. Right. So when I saw this movie Revenge, I was seeing a bunch of Korean actors and, you know, some with, uh, you know, some kind of mixed Uzbek or, or Kazakhstani. Do we say Kazakh or Kazakhstani? I think Kazakh. Are they Cossacks? Is that where the word Cossacks comes from? No, that's a different, whole different group of people. Oh. Although it's very, you know, interestingly, the various populations of um, Central Asians that came over to Europe in successive waves. It's difficult for um, anthropologists to actually identify specifically where a lot of the those population groups were centered because they were nomadic. And you know, if you if you think about where did the Hungarians come from, where did the Celts even? Um, they came across the Urals at some point. Yeah, like when I think about the the Tartars, for example, like mm-hmm. I have no idea if like, wait, am I, should I think of them as a, like a Eastern European people or are they Central Asian or are they like, I know they knew Genghis Khan, but, you know, because it was just vast Eurasia then. Right. And, and the Huns. The Huns got around. Uh, no one's a, no one's 100% sure like where the, the cradle of those populations was. These Kazakhstani Koreans, these Koryosaram, you know, did keep up their own traditions as far as. Korean culture and food. Um, they spelled their traditional Korean names, you know, with Cyrillic spelling. So we see some odd spellings of Korean names there that we don't among, say, Korean Americans or Koreans in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're like Sephardic Jews in a way. They're um, very much, mm-hmm. yeah. It's the equivalent of a Jewish diaspora, except. But they didn't maintain any kind of secret Hebrew uh, in their temples. They lost their language for the most part. That is true. And were they united by a, by a, a common religion? Did they practice? Um, uh, the Chosun dynasty was very uh, Chinese influenced. So like Confucianism would have been the state religion of a lot of these people. But Korea was and is full of Buddhists as well. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these people would have, pro- you know, insofar as they had a religious tradition, it would have been some variety of Buddhism. And some of them maintained that, but there's also a lot of just Eastern Orthodoxy among the 
Koryasaram and their dependent, uh, descendants. Buddhism wouldn't have been completely alien to this part of the world anyway. No, I mean, you're, you're not that far from the Chinese border. Right. When you're in, you know, central or eastern Kazakhstan, you're just, you know, you're just a few hundred miles away. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Interestingly, another threat to their cultural heritage and legacy came in the post-Soviet era. Uh, Kazakhstan received independence and started to try to build itself up as a world economic power. And the ties to Korea were helpful there because, you know, Korea also has become a big tiger in the world economy in the same decade. And now there's all these giant Korean global conglomerates, your Hyundais and Samsungs and Daews, who see a cultural tie, cultural ties to this new developing uh, power, which is a source of labor and a place to send exports. Does so, Kazakhstan, is it, is it a situation like um, BMW manufacturing cars in Tennessee? Does Kazakhstan have the industrial capacity because of their Soviet history that they would be useful to Korean uh, industrialists? Yeah, I think, uh, I think there's lots of potential uh, there. And uh, at the same time, Korean, the cultural influence of Korea is rising. Mm. through pop music mm. and, uh, you know, you, you see it even here in the U S how, you know, fun Korean hybrid foods suddenly appear and everybody's eating Korean fried chicken or a certain kind of Korean taco. Right. People are watching their, their, uh, soapy Korean dramas on streaming video. K-pop is very enjoyable. And everyone loves the adorable K-pop singers. <laughs> And this did a number on what was left of Koryomar because suddenly in the post-Soviet era, these people now had access to mainstream Korean culture. Before there were Korean ties between the Soviet Union and North Korea. Right. But North Korea wasn't kicking out a whole lot of uh, <laughs> no, their, culture. Their pop music isn't as fun. <laughs> no, I mean, if you want um, incredibly gifted three-year-old cellists who will be shot if they, may, if they play a wrong note, that's what North Korea has to offer mm -hmm. the Koryasaram. But suddenly they, uh, they can mainline this sweet, sweet mainstream South Korean culture. And that just does a lot to just get rid of the last vestiges of, of Koryomar and their ancestral Korean-Siberian culture. So were they, <clears throat> but prior to the wall coming down, were they a, um, a suppressed minority? And then this exposure to uh, like Korean ascendance 
culturally gave them some greater influence and now they were a treasured minority or, or, or at least a, uh, an ascendant one. How did it change the social dynamics in Kazakhstan? Well, the thing about Kazakhstan then and now is that, you know, as we said, there are just dozens, actually over a hundred, you know, different kind of murkily defined ethnic groups coexisting there. Right. And it's a, <clears throat> it actually is a place where you can drop in a hundred thousand Koreans and nobody's going to be like, wait, 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 who are these guys who now own all the corner stores? It's like a Turkic nation. That's like majority Muslim, but then a large portion of them are Christians. It's got, it's a crossroads. Yes. And the Asian influence from the East. And so, and there was a ton of exogamous marriage, mm-hmm. um, which goes on today. I think if you're a, a Korean Kazakhstani, the odds are about 50%, you will not marry a fellow Korean. And there oh. seems to be, you know, less disapprobation in either community than you would think about that. So they've been fairly well assimilated, it seems like. And, you know, that's something that Koreans, you know, have often had a genius for later elsewhere in the diaspora. You often see them becoming, you know, very successful at figuring out the changes in the new lifestyle in the new home and figuring out how to make that work that can often lead to resentment in the new country. I mean, one thing that slowed down Korean emigration to the U.S. were the L.A. riots right. in the 90s when Koreans could look on TV and see corner stores in inner city L.A. getting vandalized and kind of realizing the racial tensions that had well, formed the, on both sides. <clears throat> the Korean corner store in L.A. was a flashpoint or, I mean, it was a sure. uh, <clears throat> it was used often as an example of how the African-American residents of South Central had been disenfranchised by an immigrant community. And uh, I think, yeah, Koreans took a lot of the brunt of that anger. Mm-hmm. Those, and those were high crime areas. So, you know, you understood their concern. But at the same time, there's a real blind spot among not just Korean Americans, but Koreans in general about their feelings about Black people, you know, the general stereotypes are not pretty Mm -hmm. at all. There is just kind of a general assumption that, uh, you know, look at these lower kind of simian people that we have to deal with. And that's, that's baked into a lot of Koreans. Well, and to Asia, I mean, racism is a big. Racism is so easy. Racism is really easy. It's not like, it's not like we found the one, the one (laughs) nationality that has some racism. But in Asia, there's an awful lot of uh, hierarchical, hierarchically organized racism uh, between the Japanese and the Koreans, between the Koreans and the Chinese, between... There's kind of a tongue-in-cheek Korean creation myth that I, I heard many times living there where uh, God makes the first batch of humans and, oh, he kind of burns them. These are a little too dark. And then he makes sends the second... Sends them south. Sends them south. Then he makes the second batch. And these ones he takes out of the oven too quickly and they're all weird and light-colored. And he sends oh. them off all to their own part of the world. And then he finally gets it right when he makes the the golden brown East Asians, you know, those del- <laughs> delicious cookie people. And this was kind of a, a winking thing that Koreans would say, but it's it's definitely the way a lot of Asians have situated their culture. I mean, China comes from words meaning middle kingdom. You know, we're the center of everything. Right. We're the ones who do everything right and in moderation. Interestingly, today, a lot of the Koryosaram in Kazakhstan have tried to return to Korea and, you know, for the economic opportunities. Well, and also Kazakhstan is one of the, has one of the worst human rights records of any nation in the world. There are many reasons to, <laughs> to look for non-Kazakhstani uh, opportunities in your life, I would say. Um, and it's kind of a flashpoint in Korea. I think there is some right of return, but maybe only for 
up to three generations. And a lot of this emigration happened again in the 1860s. And so we are now well into the fourth or fifth or whatever to sixth generation. And a lot of these people get visas to come home and then can't stay. And it's a, it's a big flashpoint in Korea who maybe does not want these Central Asian sort of Koreans coming back and gumming up the economy. So within Korea, and to what little degree, I guess you would be conscious of it as a, as an American growing up there. Uh, how, how do, uh, ethnic Koreans respond to Koreans that are not a hundred percent Korean origin, like, a, like mulatto Koreans? Well, you hate to generalize and it's changing a lot now and has changed a lot then, but Korea did, you know, had kind of a lousy experience with the arrival of foreigners during the Korean war, right. the number of mixed race babies born to uh, Korean women in the wake of the U.S. forces, which then just stayed, you right. know, we still have just an insanely large military force in Korea. But also the Japanese occupation and, and the use of... And earlier, the Japanese occupation. Right. The, yeah, Korean women were called comfort women and just used as concubines by Japanese officers and staff. So, so how does that play? I mean, is there a, is, is there a lot of tension? Yeah, it was tough to be a mixed race kid in Korea when I was there, as I understood it. And something very interesting happened when a, uh, an NFL player named Heinz Ward became a bit of a star and actually became the MVP uh, when he played for the Steelers, I believe. Yes, the Steelers in Super Bowl Forty. Because he is, he was born in Seoul to an African American dad uh, and a, uh, uh, you know, U.S. Army and a Korean mom, and you know those kids had it the hardest of all, who were you know obviously half black, half Korean, but he became a bit of a celebrity in, in Korea. Korea. Yes, when he became kind of a a world sports hero. Because if there's one thing uh, Korea loves, it's when its um, success in any kind of world field, especially athletics, is disproportionate to its small geographic size. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, like, you know, Koreans will dominate sports like archery and speed skating. And I think it's kind of tactical. It's like, hey, you know, even though we're small, what if we just like destroy the world at archery and speed skating? Wasn't there a, a Korean victory in bobsled in, in the, this most recent Olympics? Yeah, that's the kind of thing where that would be a, you know, that would be a huge parade. And uh, that would be the biggest. They won their first bobsled medal in in Pyeongchang, I guess the home court advantage. Yeah. Right? Well, and it was, I, I, I happened to watch it on TV and it was just, it was bananas. And the, and the Olympian who, who won that medal was just gorgeous, you know, like completely perfect athlete. But. I remember uh, at a friend's house, he was watching a movie about uh, like Korean participation in winter sports and Korea's kind of legacy of, of winter sports. And the narrator says, never before has a nation so small been so dominant, you know, like they, they really love this idea that, yeah, just little Korea, but Hey, yeah. everybody's buying our cars Superior and people. everyone's listening to our uh, weird haired pop singers mm-hmm. uh, because they're adorable and everyone's given us archery medals. And so this actually happened with Heinz Ward and he kind of, I think he kind of helped change the face of that in Korea. You know, if you're, if you're the only default African-American Korean guy, you can think of is a celebrity that does change that. But yeah, I think that might be part of the assimilation problems for some of these kids who come home and they're in so many ways, they are much more Central Asian or even, you know, even Russian if they're Soviet era than they are Korean in any meaningful way. So now 
how large is the community in Kazakhstan and how unified is it? It's about the same as it was before. It's 100,000 people. You know, it's grown somewhat, but a lot of the people who were deported didn't make it. So, But it uh, do, does, it have an, does it have an identity? It or? does. You know, kind of the same way here, you could go to the Samoan Cultural Center or the, you know, Finnish American Cultural Center. It's kind of the same thing where, you know, there's a, a center for Korean culture. And I think it's still, you know, Ushtobe and Almaty, where they were originally dropped in the middle of the desert in a terrible human rights violation. Good luck. Um, you're exiles now. And there's increased, I think, uh, curiosity from both populations. You know, the the young Koryasaram kids, you know, learning about their heritage and Kazakhstani who are curious about Korean food, Korean culture, you know, as part of this new age of Korean cultural domination. They are proud to be one of the world's largest centers of Korean culture. There are still over 100,000 Koreans just in the middle of the desert, more than more than almost anywhere else on earth. Huh. Well, I'm looking forward to adding um, Kazakhstani kimchi to my list of uh, foods I have to try before I die. And that concludes Koryo Saram, entry 692.je. 2907, certificate number 16823 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that you have survived the diaspora of your own sentient ha uh, hat racks. There are now 100,000 talking hat racks in the middle of Kazakhstan. <laughs> the Kazakhstanis are very suspicious. You don't like when hat racks come into your neighborhood and suddenly they own the, no, they they own own, the convenience stores. Yeah, well, well, where do you put your hat? They've uh, cornered the market. <laughs> I imagine that the future, I mean, we all imagine the utopian version of the future is one where the, or I'm sorry, <laughs> I should restate that. One utopian uh, vision for the future is that the peoples of the world intermix and recognize their commonality and become a kind of a global population of people that are mochaccina colored and and share in the bounty of the earth without without restriction. It's so appealing because you know, you'd get rid of a lot of the obvious excuses for racial animus and everyone would be a, a beautiful latte color. But then you, then you realize that there are there's a large uh, proportion of the population, maybe even up to half that does not share that utopian vision and that hopes that that intermixing does not happen and regards it as a threat to their culture and their way of life. Two opposing viewpoints. Way to teach the controversy, John. <laughs> so we are hoping that you futurelings... Maybe they're half hat rack, half human. Yeah, you futurelings see no color. We hope that you all have... Uh, coexist bumper stickers on your future trains. We hope you have rods and cones in your visual receptors. We, we hope that you can see color because it's a good survival trait. But listen, we do not we do not exclude you if you do not see color. Right. What if we're listening to a, or if you what do if we're see color? What if we're speaking to a population of sentient golden retrievers who cannot see color? What if we're speaking to a population of sentient rods and cones and the rods are very racist against the cones? <laughs> you pointy cones. <laughs> <laughs> what if we're speaking to a population of sentient colors? Oh. Hey, Mauve. Wow. Well, and so you inter you intermix and all of a sudden, sure, you've got uh, 
You've got lychee fruit color. Thanks for listening, Fuchsia. Um, we hope that the rods and cones are able to come together to see our posts on social media at Omnibus Project on across all media and uh, individually at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. If you are mad at us about something, please send your angry emails to info at howstuffworks.com. <laughs> like the guy who was angry at me today for saying Appalachia instead of Appalachia. Uh, well, that's interesting. I know a girl who's named Appalachia. And um, so I think that's one of those. And her parents were Appalachian hippies. He was mad at me for saying, for not saying Appalachia, I guess. Yeah. And then I, I, like, I showed him like, Hey, the dictionary says you can say either. And he's like, yeah, but that's how we find out who the outsiders are. Sure. In my, and, and I was like, well, I, I am in fact an outsider. I'm not appropriating Appalachian culture by pronouncing it the insider way. In his tiny corner of Appalachia, that's how they know that the people from the next town are revenuers. Somebody said, if you say it, Appalachia will throw an Appalachia. And I did not even know that was a thing. And I'm afraid someone's going to throw an apple at me. Lol. They're hilarious. Those, uh, Appalachians. Those overall wearing hillbillies. We'll talk about them in a future omnibus too. Well, that sounds ominous. <laughs> I've got a lot. <laughs> They'll get what's coming to them. I've got a lot to say from about, John. about them. Them hill hill folk. You have to get you should give the real email address as well, not just the fake. Oh, one. right. And <laughs> if you have nice things to say or interesting things to say or questions or comments, marriage proposals to me. Uh Ken's already married. Sorry, ladies. Uh, and uh number well, one, number one question we get. Yep. Yeah. Uh you can send emails to us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Oh, also we have a Facebook fan uh, fan group called The Futurelings, Omnibus Futurelings on Facebook. Don't forget The Futurelings. Uh, listeners from our vantage point, long, long ago in your distant past, we have no idea what the future holds in store for us. We don't even know if our civilization will survive, if the sun will rise again tomorrow. We hope and pray that this terrible doomsday cataclysm will never come. But if the worst comes soon, if this be Doomsday, mm. I'm, talking like, I'm talking like a Stan Lee comic now. <laughs> if Doomsday be thus, uh, this recording, like every entry in the omnibus, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. Omnibus.